This is Hal Hester, lead pastor of Vine Life, and this is our podcast, The Empowered Word. I want to thank you for joining us today. I hope this message inspires you, builds your faith, and gives you perspective on what God is doing in your life. Please enjoy the message. Well, good morning. Welcome to the first Sunday in Advent. Are you excited? Yeah? Overwhelmed? Like you just realized, like, oh, that's what that means at Thanksgiving. Like, this is like the start, right? Like, bang, and we're off. And uh, hopefully you get done in time, stunned that Christmas is upon us. And, you know, it's, it's amazing. How, why does it take us by surprise? It's not like they, like... Like, it's December 25 every year, right, you know? And then somehow, like, who knew? Who knew it was going to be December 25th again? I just, I don't know. It just amazes me how that catches us off guard. Well, you know, uh, as we are here in the Advent and looking forward to uh, uh, Jesus' final coming, uh, one of the things that gets asked to me all the time, you know, is like, okay, so... We call it Christmas, and then we got this Advent thing, you know, why do we call it Advent? Aren't we just confusing people? Like, why do we do both things? Why do we, you know, even the series, it's called, you know, the Great Christmas Rescue. Like, why do we, why do we confuse all of this? And the brief answer is just simply this. Advent is about a much bigger picture than just Christmas. Christmas is specifically uh, talking about the, you know, going back historically, the mass of celebrating Christ, right? That's the, the, the language that is there, the idea of celebrating the feast of Jesus' birth. Uh, but, but Advent is a much bigger sense of concept. It is talking about the expectation of Jesus coming, the Advent, His appearing, His coming to us and being with us. And so what the reason we continue to refer to the Advent each year is the idea that we would not only reflect on the fact that He did come, but have a sense of expectation that He is coming again. And so the idea or the expectation of this season is that we would not just simply celebrate that He came, but we would like prepare ourselves mentally, emotionally, reflecting on the fact that the truths of his first coming speak to us about his second coming when you think in terms of relationship you know you, one of the things that you do in in engaging people is you watch their behavior and their behavior tells you something about the likelihood of their future behavior right in other words, if someone is kind to you, uh, merciful to you, generous to you, there is an expectation that that will continue. You look to them in that way of, uh, of a sense of expectation. Uh, a mother and child, right? That, that expectation is mom is loving and kind and will care for me. And when mom behaves differently than that, it like throws your whole world into trauma because you have an expectation that that's who she is and that's how she conducts herself with you. The same is true in the rest of our relationships. If we have an encounter with somebody and they're nasty to us, like the next time we see that person from afar off, we go, oh, and we start to go the other direction, or we put our guard up, we get ready, the anticipation. We may even create the conflict, because as they're approaching us, and we like immediately go into defensive posture, expecting them to be unkind. 
You see, the best indication of future behavior is past behavior. So that's why whenever somebody looks at you cluelessly and goes, well, uh, wow, uh, why would you like uh, respond to me like that? Well, it's because of the way you treated me last time. You know, and they're like, oh, why did you think I was going to do it this time? Because you've done it every other time before, right? I mean, there's just some rationale there in how we expect people to behave toward us. Well, the same is true when you and I come to the Scriptures, but the difference is this, is that while Advent includes Christmas, there is this expectation. If Jesus did what the Scriptures promised in His first coming then you and I can have an anticipation that God will do it again. In other words, if he says, I came and I'm coming again, we have an anticipation. Yes, he came and he will come again. It creates that sense of expectation that God is who he says he is. And one of the things that's particularly important is you and I look at the witness of the entire Bible pointing toward that final expectation of his of his ultimate return and the establishment of his kingdom is that over 80% of all of the promises made in the scripture have already been fulfilled. Now, when you look at that and you say, well, gee, you know, I mean, like I've had people in my life who meant well and made promises to me, but, you know, it was always going to happen and it never did. Anybody? Anybody? Remember that, like that aunt or that uncle that always promised ice cream whenever they came to visit? And then you never got the ice cream. And eventually when they said it, you kind of went, uh-huh. Yeah, well, we're going to have that ice cream one of these days. Or we're going to go fishing one of these days. You remember that, uncle? Yeah. Oh, yeah, I'm going to take you fishing sometime. Yeah, mm, sure you are, you know. And, but listen, when 70 to 80% of what someone has promised has come to pass, then you have this anticipation, well, I can believe them for the other 20, 30%, right? There's, it changes my sense of expectation. Today, as we're beginning our Advent series, uh, we are actually going to look at some of those early promises, especially here in, today. We're going to start in Genesis chapter 3. And oftentimes, that seems like a strange place. Every time, you know, around Advent, whenever, uh, you know, I don't do it every year, we mix it up, you know, but every time we come to Genesis chapter 3 to begin talking about Christmas or talk about Advent. Like people, I kind of get this, you know, cross eyed look like, why are we going back to the book of Genesis to talk about Christmas? Well, the, here's the thing is that the good news is on display in all of its fullness. The expectation of Advent begins in the Garden of Eden, not in a stable in Bethlehem. It finds its ultimate fulfillment then not in a manger, nor even just the cross, although the cross is significant to it, but actually in the rescue of the entire cosmos. That's why we're calling this series The Great Christmas Rescue. So with that in mind, let's take a look. Genesis chapter 3. I'm going to read from the English Standard Version. Please follow along whatever translation you have. The one in your lap is always my favorite translation. If you're using cell phone or tablet, please set those to silent for the sake of those around you. Genesis chapter 3, beginning in verse 1, and we read these words. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, 
But God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You'll surely not die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths, and they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? And the man said, The woman you gave to be with me, she gave me of the fruit of the tree, and I ate. And the Lord said to the woman, What is this that you have done? And the serpent, she said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. And the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all the beasts of the field, and on your belly you shall go. Of dust you shall eat all the days of your life, and I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Blessed be the reading of God's holy word. All right. Mm. little dry. All right, so you're probably thinking to yourself, I didn't hear anything about Christmas in that chapter. I'm completely confused. There's no Bethlehem, no manger, right? You know, so, well, like I said, it involves Christmas, but Advent is really the, the story, the entire story of the Bible. It's the unfolding of the Scripture, so to get to the good news, you and I have to understand why the good news is good. And so actually our good news only makes sense when you put it in that context. The context of the gospel is that we have fallen from a place of sinless perfection and into sin. And so what Adam and Eve, uh, uh, so that Adam and Eve did what they were told not to do. That's the inherent nature of sin. Uh, sin is not specifically just because of eating of something. Sin is not just specifically because of a particular action, but inherent to the action is the attitude of disobedience, it is the attitude of pride, it is this sense of, of that I do not need to listen, that I am trying to be my own God. You can hear it even in the words as they say, you will be like God. And the deception of that is in the simple fact that there was never a moment that they were more like God than they were before they partook of the fruit, right? That's the deception in it. There's a hook in it that tells you something about the nature, the craving, the desire of Adam and Eve was for this desire to be their own God. And that is inherently the struggle of 
humanity. Even in, when you look at things like idolatry and stuff like that, as we create graven images or, or something like that, or in a more modern way, we put all of our trust, our hopes in the things of this world that we're thinking that when we give them all of our devotion and our attention, they will give us a certain result. What it is is we are trying to manufacture, we're trying to create a particular end, a particular outcome to be our own gods, whether that's to make our own happiness, to produce the things that we want in a certain way, or even whenever we try to sidestep God in other ways uh, in which we think that we're going to attain something by doing it our way, you know, uh, we, we have this desire, right, that we're going to get the out, even sometimes in our prayer life. Isn't it true that as we're praying, oftentimes we're informing God of why he ought to do it our way instead of the way that God's doing it? Or have you ever tried to explain and articulate to God why it should be in a certain order of events Instead of being the order of events it's in currently, and like as if God, you know, like you're schooling God right now, you know? I mean, you, you wouldn't say that, and, and you would swear to yourselves that you're not doing that, but in reality, there's this, this whole thought process. You know, God, if you would just do it my way, it would be so much better. Because, number one, I would be happy with the outcome instead of it being best for what everyone needs or however the context of the gospel then is that that slipping from that place of sinless perfection into a place of self-dependence uh, self you know glorification and things like that and it continues to be the the whole motivation behind sin is that i'm going to determine the outcome uh, and from that falls out uh, all of the effects of sin the effects of sin come in the world creating strife, division, death. Death comes to every living thing. Strife settled in even between the man and the woman. Well, it was that woman that you gave me, right? I, already in the wrong place. I can just tell you, and that's still like the combat between husband and wife to this day, right? I mean, you know, like, you know, you, know, you don't have to elbow one another, but listen, it's still the strife between husbands and wives today is that sense of, you know, uh, oftentimes uh, blaming one another uh, for things in the outcome of, of, of events. Sometimes it's simply in that, uh, you know, we are silent because in the short-term goal of trying to avoid conflict, then we end up paying the long-term price of because we didn't talk about, discuss, disagree, work through short-term peace, long-term suffering. Anybody? I'm no. Don't raise your hand. But you know, we see these effects at work in the world around us. Look, even the strife that ends up between not only the hu humans and their relationship with God, but also between humanity and the animals, so that then their skins are taken to cover our nakedness. The strife between men and women in general, the struggle of the sexes, 
And what about work that became difficult and unsatisfying? At one time, they worked much like the way God worked, and that they spoke things into existence, they set things in order, they led the animals, and now there is by the sweat of the brow that brings forth little fruit. Enmity rising up between offspring of God and the offspring of the serpent. It is disastrous. And somehow, Apple got blamed. I, I figure it's an Android conspiracy. No, I'm kidding. But listen, it, it, it had nothing to do with cell phones, obviously, but it, is this, it, it, it was the first time that somebody you know, found out the consequences of breaking the Apple user agreement. Okay, I'll stop. I'll stop now. It's just the dad jokes keep coming. But anyhow, simply my point that bad news, bad news gives way to the good news. The promise of the great Christmas rescue is right there in verse 15. Even though it says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring, he tells us, and he shall bruise or cross your head, and you shall strike his heel or bruise his heel. Now, one of the things my wife asked me to do in all of this is she asked me to do, she said, you know, and since I thought, well, since I'm preaching on this text in Genesis chapter 3, and there's the beginning of strife between husbands and wives, and my wife said, you know, it would be a really good idea as you explain some of these things and you use some words that are, you know, kind of uh, uh, difficult or whatever, if you would just simply put those things on a slide so that as you keep talking fast through all these other things, somebody could actually like look a word up. So slide number one, proto-evangelium. All right, see, you can thank my wife for that word appearing on the screen if you like it. If you don't like the word on the screen, you can keep it to yourself. So, <laughs> no, 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 you could, you could like say, wasn't that helpful to me? But anyhow, so what we have here in Genesis 3.15, when we read those words, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. And that whole uh, event unfolding uh, in all of this is that, the theological word came up with this fancy word for simply meaning this. It is the first proclaiming of the gospel. So what you and I have there in Genesis chapter 3.15, like we're just, we just read about the fall and already we are reading about the way that God is going to solve the problem. In other words, in the midst of this, that as God walked into the situation fully aware, I love the way even it says, you know, where are you? That's not a location question. That is a heart question. It's not like God didn't know what was up. It's that he's asking them about where they are. Do you ever have anybody ask you those kind of questions? Where are you? God's asking the question, where are you? Not in the sense of physicality. He's asking what's going on in their hearts. Listen to the words of Adam, we were naked and we hid. And the response of God, who told you 
It really isn't about who's to blame or anything else. It's, it's really about how the relationship has changed. The proto-evangelium, it's that first proclamation of good news. God is giving them the good news even as he's given them the bad news. Can I simply point out this to you? That not once in the discourse does God curse them. He says there is there are consequences that because of the change in their relationship that they will work hard by the sweat of their brow. doesn't say that he was cursing them with work. He just said that the work would be less fruitful, that it meant that they would have to work in a different way. Can I just simply point out that whenever we paint pictures of heaven, where there's no work, can I just tell you that is an anti-biblical concept. It's not just not there, it's anti-biblical. We have a working God who continually works and then rests from his work, but we have a working God. You and I were created in his image. You and I work. We spend uh, that, the anticipation of our ruling and reigning with him is that we will rule and reign with him, not sit around and strum on harps all day, not sit around and in perpetual vacation forever, which sounds horribly boring to me, real close to hell, I'll be honest. But anyhow, uh, nonetheless, uh, uh, there's, so the first proclamation of good news is God said, I've got this. God did not go, oh, myself. I didn't see that coming. Oh no, what am I going to do with Adam? I didn't, man, I, I never knew that they would eat of the tree in the middle of the garden. I'm so, I don't know what am I going to do. He says, I've got this covered. Genesis chapter 3 is even as it's telling us that there is a problem, he's telling us that there is a solution to the problem. God's promise to solve the problem of sin, the solution, begins with the offspring or the seed of woman. Now, the actual word in Hebrew, next slide. So you can look it up if you want to. You can like Google that or whatever. You can see there's even Strong's number there. You can like literally go look that up if you want to go look it up. Uh, so, you know, my wife will be happy. Okay, and so the actual word, Zorasta, is translated seed. Now, here's why this is important. It's the only place in the entire Hebrew Bible that uses the word seed in the third person, feminine, pronominal suffix. You say, wow, that sounds really te technical. Yeah, it is. It literally translates her seed. And the uniqueness of that construction becomes even more apparent if we go from the Hebrew to the Septuagint, the Greek version. Can I have the next slide, please? Septuagint. My wife said last week, it would have been really helpful if you would explain Septuagint in a way so that people could actually find out what the Septuagint is. So the Septuagint, if you go to look it up, you will probably see LXX, 
which is 70. And the word Septuagint literally means the 70 because it had involved 70 original authors that got together to do the Greek version of the Old Testament. If you remember last week, one of the things I told you about the Septuagint is that the Hebrew people got to the point because of being conquered by Greek rulers going from, uh, from Alexander the Great all the way through uh, Antiochus IV during that reign of terror over them and all, that they, the people lost their ability to read Hebrew. And so eventually the Septuagint, the Greek version of the Old Testament, became the, uh, the primary Bible of the Hebrew people who no longer spoke Hebrew, no longer read Hebrew. Many of them didn't know how. You can read about other accounts in the Scripture where at times they lost their ability to read Hebrew. It happened multiple times. And so whenever they actually like got found the bible found scrolls and they got them out and they stood up and they read them and the whole congregation of israel all of israel came together and they stood up and they read the scripture continually from day to night and the people stood there and they rent their clothes because of their great pain of the idea that they had completely lost the voice of god by the conquest of other peoples because they had quit because they had been silent and they'd allowed all that to happen and they tore their clothes. We can hardly get somebody to stand still to read like, you know, for five minutes. They read all day long. That's all they did. They read the scripture all day long and the people wept because they so longed to hear the voice of God. When the Septuagint Bible came on the scene... It became their primary Bible because it was the one that they could read. It was the one that they could engage. And they had been so deprived of the Word of God, they just longed to have the Word of God in their heart language and their ability to read it and understand it. Something that you and I can't really even begin to understand when we can buy a Bible at Walmart for four bucks. And so here's this sense of anticipation, and, and that was the Bible then of the early church and why the New Testament always refers to the Septuagint because that's the Bible that the people would have actually read. Well, in the, in the Septuagint, as they were translating from the Hebrew, they wanted to make sure that the Greek readers would get the importance of what was happening there in the Hebrew because it so stuck out it's like breaks every rule of Hebrew. So in the Greek, they translated as her sperma. Do you recognize a word there? Sperm? Her sperm. Now, I don't know if you remember biology class, but in biology class, women have eggs and men have sperm. So to talk about her sperm doesn't make any sense in the biological framework of things. I want you to think of it something like this. If I said to you today, I referred to somebody named Ralph, and then I kept using the pronoun her, it would create some confusion. Not as much today, because, you know, we've got stuff happening in society. But to the average English speaker, if I said Ralph, and then I said her, they would go, Something's up. That doesn't make any sense. Why do you keep calling Ralph her? Now, I know 
for those of you who are old enough to remember Green Acres, like, that's not what I'm talking about, okay? So, and if you don't get that reference, look it up. So, you know, that's what Google is for, okay? So, the point simply is this. When you hear a name like Ralph, you expect there to be masculine pronouns with it in a normal situation. When the Greek translates her sperm, her sperm will crush the head of the serpent. It calls her sperm he. Let me say that again. It calls her sperm a he. And so what happens there in all of that complexity of that is it's painting this picture that her seed will be a male but will not have any paternal lineage. There's something unique about the situation and and how it's put together that it defies everything that we understand normal. Now, you and I, if, as we read that whole thing, he will crush the head of serpent. You and I could maybe think of, you know, like Romans chapter 16, verse 20, the God of peace will soon crush Satan underneath your feet. But if we're looking back to that Greek and Hebrew there in Genesis, that construction of feminine for seed together with the masculine pronoun is the only time in the Hebrew Bible, the only time in the Septuagint, that where the gender of the word does not agree in gender with its antecedent. Now, here's the thing that's really important in that. In the Greek, they have gender-neutral words. We don't have them in English. We're starting to make them up now. But we don't actually have gender neutral in English. In Greek, they have always had gender neutral terms. Always. It's not nothing, it's not something new. It's always been there. So if they wanted to make it gender neutral, they could have. Why did they intentionally mix the pronoun? In the word. Because they wanted the reader to pick up on the dissonance between those two things. They wanted the reader to recognize that we're talking about something really unique. Now, it'd be easy at this moment to simply say, Hal, gosh, I know you know you I know you like Hebrew and Greek and all that really technical stuff, but you know, like do I really need to know all this technical stuff? Well, without it, you have no concept of the virgin birth. You actually have no argument. This is it. This is it. And it was important enough that when they were translating it into another language, they wanted to make sure that they could follow the reasoning of why it didn't fit. In other words, those who were writing us the Bible thought it was important. So might it be important? Just a little bit, right? I mean, it's technical, but listen, like not everything you learn in life is simple that's important. Some things are technical. And so here, it, it, it's, it's really technical. 
But it's the only way that Genesis 3.15 makes sense is this. That a child, a male child born of a woman without the seed of man, the virgin birth, begins in the opening chapters of your Bible. When you're trying to understand, when the Bible opens up in Genesis chapter 1 and it tells you, in the beginning God, it's not just a scientific statement, it's not trying to argue about creation versus evolution and all that kind of stuff. It's making the profound statement, everything, everything, everything begins with God. Everything begins there and it ends there. Like that everything that we orient ourselves around begins with this whole idea that God from the very beginning knew what he was doing, that God from the very beginning foresaw all the tr troubles, the difficulties, the hardships that would come. And through that, like he looked at that and said, yeah, that's worth it. The next time you're wondering if life is worth it, the next time you were pondering whether or not that you want to find the hit escape button some way, and you're thinking that it doesn't really matter, it matters. It absolutely matters. That from the very beginning, he looked at even the hardship, the trials, the difficulties, the circumstances that would be beyond our control, the things like wars and rumors of wars and all the things that are going to unfold in the, uh, and all the pages of history. He looked through those hallways of time and he said, bringing it to this conclusion is worth all of that. So then whenever I am in those midst of those situations and those difficulties and those hardships and trials and I get that scope of what the scripture is talking about, that I have this confidence in him. See, that's where faith becomes faith. Not when it's convenient, not when it's easy, not when I like the outcome, not whenever I want to be God instead of him, but in the place where when I come to those moments, those hardships, and I say, God, you are still God. I trust you, I believe you, I lean into you, and that the whole witness of the scripture, the entire thing is bound up in this idea that he has made a way for you and I through the virgin birth through the giving of Jesus, so that from the very beginning, in other words, everything that you read in the Old Testament is leading up to this whole expectation that the Messiah was going to come and bring us hope. He was going to give us new life. And the reason that we want to stop every year and for four weeks reflect on this whole thing of Advent not just Christmas, is that it says to us that the God who put everything in order, the God who is the author of all things, before he spoke those things into being, had a plan that included you coming to know him through Jesus Christ. It really is the hope of the world. It really is the answer when you and I are being approached and we're being asked questions about like, why do we believe in God even when there is evil? Why do you and I trust Him 
when, our, when hardship and trial and difficult circumstances have come our way? Why do we lean into him? And the answer goes all the way back. We look and we say, because he who created all things looked through the hallways of time. He looked at all those events and the unfolding of them, and he said that us coming to know him and to live and reign with him forever was worth it all. He had a plan from the very beginning. Tap your neighbor and say, he had a plan. He had a plan from the very beginning. It's not like he just like got to this whole thing, wow, that's this whole law thing, you know, it's just not working out. I didn't see that one coming. Gosh, what am I going to do? Hey, Jesus, do you think you could go down there and straighten out? No. From the very beginning. Now, the God who thought that through, the God who considered all of the consequences and everything and said that you and I and the great outcome were worth it and then actually put that plan into place throughout time and history, allowing people to exercise their very real free will while him continually adjusting and moving with patience through time and history adjusting to our responses adjusting to the events that unfold in the world adjusting to the consequences of the evil that we do of the wickedness that even believers do playing his part over and over and over again with one solitary outcome in mind, do you think the God that's committed to doing that, who brought us to this point in time, who brought to pass the birth of Jesus by a virgin, according to what he promised there in chapter 3, what do you think the odds are that he will pull the rest of it together in due time according to his plan. I don't know about you, but that is just so, my mind wants to explode just thinking about all the infinite number of possibilities, all the, all the people, the billions of people on the earth doing their own thing, going their own way, and him just simply adjusting and adjusting, and adjusting, and adjusting, and allowing people to do their will so that he might do his will and bring it about in the fullness of time. And then you and I can go back to this slide, Ephesians 1.4. He chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. He chose us. He chose us even before Genesis chapter 3. He knew before Adam and Eve sinned that they would sin. And he had a plan. And as he was making that plan, it included Jesus saying, and I will go and suffer 
for their sake. I will go and pay the price for their sake. It wasn't like the father said, you know, somebody's going to have to do that. All right, short straw. Who's going <laughs> to? Because God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit had a plan, and God decided that Jesus would come. All of the pain, all the trouble, all the wars, all the famine, all the striving. And he said, we're worth it. I guess my biggest question at that point is, why? Like, I like y'all, but why? <laughs> why? And the only answer is, is us. That's why he did it. And with each and every day, with each and every tick of the clock, we're ever moving toward this glorious conclusion that the he who promised in Genesis 3.15 is the same one who was born in Bethlehem, who died on Calvary, that that is why we believe he will come back in glory to claim his own, to set all things right. That's why we believe that he will wipe away our tears, will make the lion lay down with the lamb. That's why we believe that he is going to reconcile male and female, slave and free, Jew and Gentile, and ultimately put an end to death. Because he who promised is faithful. That's why it's the great rescue. So as you and I move toward Christmas and the fun of the season, Advent is not just some kind of trimmings at church. It is the real reason why we not only celebrate the birth of Jesus, but why we have been called as a people to prepare our hearts for his full and final return. This is the season of reminding one another. This is the season in which we center ourselves on who he says he is and we look with expectation toward the future. Not because we have so much confidence in the continuation of our nation, not because we have confidence in the uptick in the economy or that the politicians can solve our problems, but because we believe that he is coming back for us. So this coming year, 2023, our focus for the year, is on equipping people to reach their friends and family. Can I just point out that all that start here is about and all of our looking forward really boils down to this do we trust god to fulfill everything that he said and promised in genesis chapter 3 are we looking with anticipation amen well that said let's stand together i ask prayer team members go ahead and come on up and let me just simply invite you, if you find yourself in a, a place uh, 
uh, as we're moving into this holiday season and maybe, you know, you're, you're, you know there's so many things that uh, become the traps of the season, uh, things that cause us to uh, get wrapped around the axle, whether it's uh, presents, money, uh, family events, all kinds of other things that really kind of distract us from the sense of looking forward to and anticipating the coming of Jesus. Uh, that there's all kinds of things in the midst of the Christmas season that we get wrapped around the axle about uh, in terms of em emotional uh, events and things happening around us. And so I just want to invite you this morning, if you uh, find yourself heading into this season uh, not with a sense of expectation, uh, not with a sense of God meeting you, uh, without the sense of, uh, you know, uh, believing that He is for you or that life has some greater and bigger purpose than simply the difficulties and hardship that you're facing. If you find yourself in any of those places, let me invite you to come and get some prayer this morning uh, and take time to just really set the course in a different direction and to not allow the enemy to just like use this holiday season to uh, confuse you, to sow doubt in your heart, or, or worse yet, to question uh, the value of going forward and for, you know in life in general. And so, Father God, we just come before you this morning to thank you uh, for this season of Advent. We celebrate that Jesus came, that it is so, that you made it uh, your desire to dwell in the midst of us, and you gave us the evidence uh, through the birth of your son Jesus, entrusting to us the Savior, the hope of the world, entrusting to a young mother uh, this precious gift of life uh, that would bring to us hope and healing for the nations in such a, a disarming and unexpected way. And yet, isn't it bizarre, Father? I just find myself in awe of the simple fact that you told us from Genesis chapter 3 on, you told us that you were going to do it Oh, Lord, how many times I find myself doubting you in this world, in this life, and I look at the evidence of things like that and are reminded of how good you are. Lord, may that confidence permeate our hearts day to day as we press forward and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. If you need prayer, please come on up and get prayer. Otherwise, uh, take some time in the lobby, say hello, greet one another, uh, because uh, we're going to do eternal life together. All right. See you next week, Lord willing. I hope you enjoyed our podcast today. If you did, there's two things you could do for me. First, subscribe to our channel. That way, the most recent podcast will always be in your feed, ready when you are. And secondly, if this ministry has impacted you, would you help us to continue to reach others? by clicking on the link in the description to give now. Until next time, thank you so much for listening to The Empowered Word.